Well, go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you will, to the book of Revelation. And as you do, take a moment and to consider the state of the church in America today. And imagine, as you consider, if God were to send individual letters or messages to each and every local church, what would they say? What would his letter to us say? Well, some, I I pray, would be filled with words of encouragement. Jesus saying to the church, these are the things that you're doing well. Keep doing them. But I imagine many of us would also hear some, some needed words of correction, even things that we need to repent of. But to each and every church, I'm confident that he would give the charge to persevere to continue in the faith in the midst of the trials that we are presently facing and the ones that are to come. And to the one who conquers, to the one who remains faithful to the end, he he would provide a, a needed reminder of the eternal hope that we have in Christ. Now, how do I know this is what he would say? Because he's already said it. It's what he says to the seven churches in Asia that we're looking at today. Seven literal churches that also stand representative of the universal church, the the church as a whole throughout history. Meaning these messages could just as easily have been given to the church today and in fact have. Each of them addressing things that we must continue to, to guard against strive for and be encouraged by as we look to impatiently to patiently endure the trials of this world. See, the unifying thread connecting these messages, these seven letters, is the reality that the church, the church then and the church today, will endure trials and tribulations. Christians are not exempt from suffering. The road to the promised land, the road to heaven, is paved with difficulty and suffering. But the prize for those who persevere to the end is worth every tear that will be shed and every scar we will receive along the way. See, last week we we heard Jesus' comforting words to the church facing such trials. The church pictured as lampstands gathered around with Jesus in the midst of the lampstands and what was the words that he gave to the church? Fear not. Fear not. This week, we see how we can hear and hold these words with confidence as our reality both now and forever. Now, just a quick reminder before we we dive in. My aim with this series is is simply to to focus on the big picture, not to examine every little detail. At the same time, I have no intention of examining every possible disagreement or area of disagreement that may arise. We would be here forever. I'm just going to preach it as I most clearly see it. And in the process, I realize that some of you may see things differently. And if so, that's okay. 
How many times are you going to hear a pastor say that? Like, it's okay to disagree as long as, and there isn't as long as that comes in here, as long as those differences aren't standing against the things we hold in agreement within our statement of faith. But here's my challenge. If you find you are disagreeing with something either today or throughout this series, make sure that you're doing so based upon strong scriptural conviction, evidence, defense as to why. And not just because what you hear goes against something you may have grown up believing or have always believed to be true. See what scripture says. And so with that, let's pick up in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for, for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to, to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So seven angels are given a message from Jesus. Each of them given a message to give to one of the seven churches. This one here being Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. And what we see is that this message is, is a mixture. It's a mixture of praise and it's a mixture of rebuke. Jesus praising their hard work and their patient endurance. He commends them on how they've stood against false teaching and how they've not grown weary all of these being positives that every church should want to be said of them. I pray that they will be able to be said of us. But now look at verse 4. But I have this against you. These are words that not any church should ever want to hear. But wanting to hear and needing to hear are two different things entirely. Sometimes we need to hear things that we don't want to hear. And if they're coming from someone who truly loves us, truly cares about us, has our best interest in mind, as is the case with Jesus, we do well to listen. So what is it that Jesus has against them? Because they appear to be a faithful church. Well, look what he says in verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Meaning this is a church that is solid in their doctrine, but lacking in their love. They've stood firm against false teaching, but in their fight for the truth, they seem to have abandoned their love of neighbor. 
which can easily lead to one's abandonment of one's love for God as well. Especially we consider how the love for God and love for neighbor are so intimately tied together throughout Scripture. Which means it's not enough to, to have sound doctrine if it's not accompanied by love. A problem churches today still must work to guard against. As important as sound doctrine is, we must never let our pursuit of it cause us to abandon our love for one another or for those God has called us to minister to, to see them somehow as enemies. Nor should it lead us to lose our love for the one who makes our love possible, Christ himself. Loving doctrine so much, we forget to love the one who the doctrine points us to. Thus, Jesus' call to the church to do what? Repent and do the works you did at first. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, church. Love Jesus and love those Jesus loves. See, I think a a thing that is often forgot is that we can't genuinely love Jesus if we don't love the people that Jesus loves. And if they and if we don't, what does Jesus promise to do? He promises to remove their lampstand from its place. Now, does this mean that they're going to lose their salvation? No, because that can't happen. Scripture is clear. But it could mean that members of local churches will prove themselves actually to be unbelievers over time. And it could mean that if this lack of love continues, the local church itself will will lose its gospel witness. It's going to be as though they're putting the the light underneath a, a basket. Now, that lack of losing their witness could either be the result of their lack of love or Christ may simply remove whatever influence that they may have. Thus, the call to repent. And if they do, to the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful in love to the end, Jesus says, he will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the one who remains faithful to the end, Jesus gives an eternal hope, one that we need to cling to, the the hope of eternal life with God. Now picking up in verse 8, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna. And Jesus starts this message by saying he, he knows, he's aware of, he's mindful of their tribulation, their their poverty, even though he says that they're rich, and the slander that they are experiencing. This slander coming from those Jesus refers to as the synagogue of Satan. 
who is the synagogue of Satan. Jesus is referring to Jews who claim to believe in God who, but who are not trusting in himself, in Christ, as their only hope in life and in death. He, he's referring to Jews who have rejected the gospel, a people the world would see as very religious. And Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan. A reminder, a very important reminder, one must be clear to remember and stand for and within our pluralistic culture. The only way one can be a child of God is through faith in Christ alone. Anyone else is a part of the synagogue of Satan. And it's the synagogue of Satan that has slandered the Christian church and has apparently reported them to the Roman government as enemies of the state. I hear this, I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I think of Daniel being pointed out as enemies of the state for their, for their faith. Their faithfulness leading to what? Great tribulation. Tribulation that they could have avoided how? By bowing to the crown and worshiping the king, worshiping the emperor. Same thing essentially happening here with the church in Smyrna. And what are Jesus' words to the church whom he calls rich despite their poverty? He says, do not fear. Again, a reminder, fear not. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus saying, do not fear, but at the same time affirming that they are going to suffer. Even saying, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Telling them for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, 10, 10 days uh, appearing to refer to, whether it's 10 literal days or not, it appears to refer to a manageable amount of time. Meaning at some point this tribulation will come to an end for them as the church. It's not going to last forever. But not lasting forever doesn't mean the tribulation will end while they're still alive on this earth. Which is why until it ends, they, we are to do what? Look what it says. Remain faithful unto death. Remain faithful until you take your very last breath. And if you do that... What does Jesus promise? I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11, the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful, will not be hurt by the second death. Christ encouraging his church to set our eyes in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering that may take our life in this world on the hope that is to come because the second death will not hurt us. Now picking up in verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. 
where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this is Jesus' message to the church of Pergamum. They too are facing persecution, even violent persecution. We're told Antipas, a faithful witness of Jesus, it's about all we know. We're told of him being killed. And still, they, they in many ways have proven to remain faithful unto Christ despite the persecution, despite the pagan influences that surround them within their culture, but not completely. As Jesus says in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. And what Jesus has against them is their failure to reject false teaching. So while the church in Ephesus was was all about rejecting false doctrine, fighting for the truth, the same cannot be said about the church at Pergamum which despite their faithfulness is now putting them in, very danger, in a very dangerous position. Friends, this is what we would refer to today as a slippery slope to liberalism. Claiming Christ, but becoming loose with sound doctrine. Redefining what God himself has clearly defined in order to blend in with the culture. Not taking a stand according to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. A path that doesn't lead to righteousness, but to apostasy. A trend that is all too apparent within our churches today. Thus, Jesus is calling verse 15 to repent. Turn away from this false doctrine and turn toward and embrace sound doctrine. Fight for the truth. And for the one who conquers, what does Jesus promise? He promises to give some hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on the stone. We read this and we're like, what does he mean by this, (laughs) right? That's such encouragement to be found here, church. Again, remember Old Testament references and allusions that are pointing back. See, the the manna means Jesus will feed his people the spiritual food we need for our eternal nourishment, now and forever, for he is the bread of life. And the white stone, uh, it's the assurance for we who remain faithful to the end that Christ is our righteousness and it will never be taken away. No matter how difficult this journey gets, he will hold us fast. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of this often. He will hold me fast. Now picking up in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works. 
your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus' message to the church at Thyatira. It's the longest of the seven messages and one of the strongest rebukes as well. It's a church that in many ways seems to be the opposite of the church in Ephesus. They're praised for their love, but they're lacking in their doctrinal commitment. This now becoming a pattern throughout these messages, emphasizing the, the important balance between sound doctrine and love that is needed within the Christian life. Now, the name Jezebel is a very familiar Old Testament name. By no means a popular name. There's nobody naming their daughter Jezebel today, just like there's nobody naming their son Judas. It's a name synonymous with seduction, sexual morality, and idolatry. Jesus using this title here in reference to someone within the church who's deceiving the church through her seductive personality and false teaching likely promising some type of comfortable life. But the comfortable life requires what? It requires compromise. The subtle justification of sin. Like eating food sacrificed to idols, which would have been taking place all throughout the culture. Go to somebody's home. They would maybe have been offering food that had been sacrificed to idols. A business encounter, food sacrificed to idols. Ah, if you eat it, life gets a lot easier but have to turn it away, you have to go against the culture. You have to go against the grain. You stand out in the world. If you just eat it, you can blend right in. Now, we may not be eating food that is sacrificed to idols, but think of all the ways that we're tempted to blend into this world and compromise spiritual fidelity for the sake of personal comfort. Probably more than we'd like to admit. And what's Jesus' message to his church? Repent. Turn away from this. Why? 
Because anyone who commits adultery with her follows this teaching, Jesus will throw them into great tribulation. And the suffering for those who follow her teaching will be severe. And the church, the church, this is a stern warning to us today. We must not be seduced by the Jezebels of this world inside the church or outside of the church, male or female. We must remain faithful to Christ until the end. And the reality is the less grounded we are in God's word, the more our love begins to fade and the more likely we are to be seduced. But to the one who conquers and who keeps his works until the end, Ah, to him, Jesus will give authority over the nations. Did you catch that? (laughs) Those who remain faithful to the end, Jesus will give authority over the nations. Which means what? It means we who are presently seen as weak by this world will one day rule and reign with Christ. We may not receive all the the tempting treasures of this earth, but we who are in Christ will receive the morning star. We'll receive Christ. A powerful reminder to the church to keep our eyes focused upon Jesus and not let the things of this world seduce us to compromise in any way. Now picking up in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. And repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what hour you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus' message to the church in Sardis. And I read this and I'm like, oh my. It's a rebuke that is right out of the gate. He's not pulling any punches. I'm like, straight at it. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And I don't believe that these words could be any more applicable to the church in America today. Looking alive in so many cases, but actually dead. Looking to be healthy, but actually unhealthy. It all depends on what measurement of health or success we're using, of course. If it's just doctrinal fidelity that matters, then the church in Ephesus is doing great. But what about their love? If it's just loving our our neighbor and advocating for matters of justice, then, well, then doctrinal fidelity doesn't matter. 
But what about the apostasy that that leads to? But friends, the real question is, what does Christ see when he looks at us? What does Christ see when he looks at Harvest Point Community Church? Does he see a church that is alive or does he see a church that is dead or dying? One that is full of zeal and desire and love for God? One that has a love for one another? Or one that has grown apathetic and is simply going through the motions, putting off an appearance of godliness without actually being godly? What would he see when he looked at your life? What do we see when he looks at us as a whole? Thus Christ called to the church then and today to wake up, to repent. And if you will not wake up, the warning is clear. Christ will come against you. An apathetic Christian, an apathetic church may have the ability to deceive the world around us, but we are unable to deceive Christ. That's the call to wake up and to repent and to do so before it's too late. But now for the one who conquers. And there were a few who remained faithful in Sardis by the grace of God. To you, you will be clothed thus in white garments. And Christ will never blot your name out of the book of life. Jesus saying, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Again, a call for the church, no matter the circumstance, to remain faithful to the end. Now, picking up in chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about the patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia. She, like the church in Smyrna, given praise for her faithfulness they of a little power have remained faithful and continue to patiently endure under trial. A reminder that it's not the size or perceived influence of a church that matters. It's her faithfulness. 
And the charge to the church in Philadelphia is to remain faithful because Jesus knows they, like every other church, will be tempted not to. Whether it's through the seduction of false teaching or the difficulty of the trials that are to come, our faithfulness will continue to be tested. Now, in the context of this particular church, it appears they've been excommunicated from the local synagogue, kicked out. The door closed so they could not enter. But notice how Jesus refers to an open door which no one is able to shut. It's referenced in both verses 7 and 8. And as you look, notice who holds the key. Jesus. Meaning only he has the ability to open or close the door. This door not being the door to one local synagogue, but to the kingdom of God. Meaning while the Christians in Philadelphia may have been excommunicated from the synagogue, they haven't been excommunicated from the kingdom. In fact, they are the ones who are able to enter through the open door, not the unbelieving Jews. See, the church may be of little power in the eyes of this world, facing persecution and lacking influence, but what does Jesus do? He commends them for their faithfulness. Why? Because they've continued to walk in the faith despite their circumstances, in the midst of their circumstances. Unlike the church in Sardis, they have not denied the name of Jesus. And because they have not denied Jesus, he will not deny them. He will be their defense. He will make those of the synagogue of Satan come down, bow down before their feet. And notice what he says, they will learn that I have loved you. Did you catch that? The, the non-Christian Jews who, who think that they're powerful, who think themselves alone to be God's people, will bow at the feet of those who are seen to have little power. Now, this bowing isn't, isn't to be seen as an act of worship, but an act of submission. Jesus, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 26, the church will be given authority over the nations, as Jesus says. This encouraging word from Jesus intended to, to point the church's focus beyond the present circumstances and to fix their eyes on the hope that is to come. When we who are in Christ will rule and reign with Christ in the judgment of the nations. And these unbelieving Jews in that moment will learn that God's true love is not for them, but only for those who have trusted in Christ as their only hope in life and in death. Meaning they'll in that moment, along with every unbeliever, realize that they, not Christians, are the ones who have been excommunicated. And not from the synagogue, but from God's kingdom, the heavenly temple. See, verse 10 tells us there's a trial that is to come. And those who patiently endure in faith will be kept from this trial. But those who don't, won't. Now, there is debate, as there is with a lot of things within this book. There is debate as to what the I will keep you from the hour of trial is exactly referring to, what is exactly meant the question is, does the word translated as keep 
mean from mean protect from or remove from? So does it mean protect you as you endure or remove you so you don't have to endure, so you don't experience? If you would, turn with me to John chapter 17 quickly. John chapter 17, verse 15. I believe John 17, 15 helps bring some clarity to this question. It has for me. As what you have is the same writer, John, using the same word translated here as keep, helping us understand the context of in which he uses it. So look with me at John 17, 15, where he writes the words of Jesus' prayer for his people. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And Jesus, in a part of that prayer, is praying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus is not praying for his followers to be removed from the trials that are to come, but to be protected from the evil one as they endure the trials. Jesus then saying in verse 11, back here in Revelation, Jesus saying in Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And then in verse 12, the one who conquers, perseveres in the faith, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. Which leads me to believe that what Jesus wants us to see is the emphasis on his protection for his people within the great tribulation. Protecting his people as we endure the tribulation, not our exemption from it. Think of the Israelites in Egypt, both during their 400 years in slavery and the 10 plagues. They weren't removed from experiencing those trials, were they? But what were they protected from? God's judgment. How? By taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb. See, I don't see anywhere in Scripture that indicates Christians won't experience the tribulations that are to come. But I do see ample evidence that we will be protected from God's wrath that will fall upon the unbelieving world. How? By the seal of God's blood. Christ's blood. Christ's blood for us. There's a big difference in experiencing God's wrath and experiencing Satan's wrath. As Satan's wrath may take our life. But if it does, we immediately enter through the open door of God's kingdom into our heavenly home. Never to be removed. God's wrath, however, endures forever. But Christ promises we who continue to patiently endure to the end are protected from the second death that is to come, as he will hold us fast. So no matter how difficult this journey gets, continue to remain faithful. Keep our eyes upon Jesus and remove anything that would distract you from doing otherwise. Now for the seventh and final church, in verse 14, and to the angel of the church lay out a sea of right. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. 
Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from, from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is Jesus' message to the church of Laodicea. They received no words of affirmation. They're praised for absolutely nothing. They are only rebuked. Why? Because of their apathetic complacency. They believe themselves to be rich, self-sufficient, needing nothing, a reminder of Jesus' words when he said it's easier for an, a, a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because the person who thinks of him or herself as self-sufficient doesn't realize their helplessness, their poverty, has no ability to recognize how, how little power they actually have. And Jesus is saying, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. So because you are lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Essentially what Jesus is saying is they're like unfit drinking water that Laodicea was known for. They're neither hot like a good cup of coffee. You don't want a lukewarm cup of coffee, do you? You want a cold cup of coffee unless it's iced coffee. And then iced coffee is refreshing or, or a refreshing cold glass of, of ice water. If you're lukewarm, it's, it's worthless. Spit you out of my mouth, he says. Jesus is saying this to a church that thinks itself to be rich. But rather than rich, they're, they're poor in the eyes of Jesus. But here's the thing, and don't miss this, church. Here's the thing. Jesus loves them enough to tell them. He loves them enough to tell them they're lukewarm. As he says in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He loves them. He wants them to repent. He doesn't have to give them or us any opportunity to repent, but he does. The question is, will we? See, verse 20, while often used in the context of evangelism, is really a call to apathetic and complacent Christians to repent. Jesus is saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Remember, those who, who hear and obey God's voice are God's children. They're alive in him. Those who don't, they prove themselves to be dead actual enemies of God, regardless of whatever appearance they put forth. 
Now this eating here points our attention once again to the eschaton, to the end times and the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where Jesus says, we who remain faithful to the end will sit with him on his throne. We will rule and reign with Christ. We see this over and over through these letters. But for those who who don't remain faithful to the end, those who remain in their lukewarm state, They'll prove themselves to be like the synagogue of Satan. And he will spit you out to be consumed by the wrath that is to come. Church, what we have throughout each of these messages are, are some praises and some rebukes. We see the importance of sound doctrine emphasized. But at the same time, the reminder, love for God and neighbor must continually mark the Christian life. Jesus doesn't sugarcoat anything. He's clear. The road ahead of us is going to be hard. We're going to be tempted to compromise. We may be tempted to quit. This journey, this faithfulness may very well cost us our life. But his call is for us to remain faithful to the end. And when we stray, he will discipline us, but only because he loves us. But we can be assured he will never abandon us, we who are truly in Christ. And it's for this reason alone we will conquer. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? The church, this is happening right now. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall shall tribulation or or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Imagine the Afghan church echoing these words. But what is the response? No. No. In all these things, all these things being tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, all these things. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We ask now that you will use the preaching of your word 
to both convict and encourage. To bring sinners to repentance and to help us patiently endure to the end. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Will you stand together with me? And let's collectively sing as the church, He will hold me fast. Mm -hmm.